news, the king of the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus the Christ. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount as a sample of the king's preaching. And he records the response of the people by taking note of the fact that he taught them as one having authority. And authoritative teaching is what you would expect from a king. Now here in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, together we have a two-chapter section that records ten miracles of Jesus. And these are, these are something like samples, ten samples out of all of his miracles. And they are designed to continue that same point that he's been making They're designed to demonstrate that Jesus has authority over sin and all of the consequences of sin. Authority in several realms that is demonstrated. And many of you have numbered all ten of those miracles. And so I trust you could even quickly refresh your memory that the first three miracles involve deliverance from physical illness. One man was delivered early in chapter Eight from the dreaded disease of leprosy. And then we noted a second one that a Roman centurion servant was delivered from paralysis. And then Peter's mother-in-law was delivered from what would have been a fatal infectious fever. All of those demonstrating Jesus' authority over physical illness. Then the fourth miracle is the one that we considered last time, and that involved delivering the disciples from a storm on the sea uh, that, that was washing wave after wave after wave over their boat. They were in great fear that they were about to die, and, and Jesus was with them in that boat, but in the storm, um, he, he was asleep. And so they came and woke him and pled with him, Lord, save us, lest we perish. And when he spoke, he just simply ordered the wind and the waves to be still. And verse number 27 records that the disciples marveled and said, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves, the sea obeys him? And while you, while you ponder that question, again, that question of what, what kind of man, what do you think about the kind of man that can heal diseases of all sorts and can command storms and they obey? What kind of man is this? While you're pondering that, again, he just moves us quickly into another scene and another arena of life. And this time it is the spirit world, and specifically the world of the demonic. And I'm going to begin by reading in verse number 28. And we're going to read this entire scene down through verse number 34. So if you follow along, Matthew 28, uh, 8, verses 28 through 34. Notice that when he was come to the other uh, side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fears, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, 
What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and heard of swine, a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. In keeping with this overarching theme, this scene demonstrates that Jesus has authority, again, not only over physical illness and the natural world, but he has authority over the spirit world. Jesus simply says, go. One word. And enough demons to enter an entire herd of pigs are dismissed out of two men. And Mark's account tells us there was about 2,000 pigs. Jesus says, go, and 2,000 plus, perhaps, demons are dismissed out of two men. He has all authority over the spirit world. And I think we're aware of the fact that we just don't see as many open encounters with the spirit world as people did in Jesus' day, and, and some today are still experiencing other places in the world. Uh, James Frazier uh, ministered just about 75 years ago, the end of his ministry that time, to a people known as the Lysu that lived in the mountains of China. And those people had been steeped in demon worship for centuries. And Frazier's biographer wrote, Persuasion to pay half-hearted lip service to God for a while would be a relatively harmless exercise. It could coexist with the demon shelf anyway. But he said, if the spirit of the living God were to regenerate the hearts of these people and set up his kingdom in their hearts, that would be a different matter. The enemy would make an onslaught against any such possibility. And there are multiple testimonies about that. One of the first families to profess faith in Christ in the mountains was the Sai family, T-S-A-I. And one night, this family of newly professed believers were singing some of the new Christian hymns when the father brought up the whole question of the demon shelf. And his family decided... At once, it was time to burn it. And they did. But that very night, that old man was seized with a back pain that soon spread to his entire body. And his agony was so intense that the entire family was up most of that night trying to help him relieve his pain. 
that eventually they decided that it had to be more than physical and they decided to pray about it and after they prayed the pain eased and gradually went away there was a time when even about that family Fraser feared many of them would be turned back to their old superstitions but they eventually displayed just being established in the faith but from the first mention of let's get rid of the demon shelf and the burning of it there was an attack even in developed countries and cultures some of these realities are known martin lloyd jones was ministering in wales last century and a woman that was well known in that community for making her livelihood as a spirit medium was sick on a particular sunday evening and she was unable to go out to lead a a spiritist meeting that she typically led on sunday evenings but she lived not far from the church and she actually sitting at home watched a number of believers walking to that church she said and she caught i wonder what people see of us she caught their joyful countenances as they walked by her house on the way to church and she thought they must have been anticipating receiving some kind of a blessing there it caught her attention and it wakened in her a desire to go visit herself and when she was over her own illness and went to that church the very first service she went to and heard the gospel she was converted and that lady had a consistent testimony to her death until her death but when she ta- shared her testimony with the one who ended up leading her to the savior she said this she said the moment i entered your chapel and sat down amongst the people i was conscious of a supernatural power i was conscious of the same su- sort of supernatural power i was accustomed to in our spirit meetings but there was one big difference i had the feeling that the power in your chapel was a clean power and i know it's possible for us to hear these kind of things and and have a tendency to just you know want to dismiss the stories as wild uh, you know kind of fanatics those are people that are out there but the fact is when you read the scripture there are about 75 references in the new testament alone to this whole arena of the spirit world and there are dozens of others in the old testament as well if you were with us last sunday evening you'll you'll see that we have kind of a providential dovetailing of an emphasis in our spiritual warfare series with where we've arrived at this morning and i'm going to draw on that try to save some time and so i don't want to have you turn to ezekiel 28 but you know that last sunday night we did that we were introduced if you remember to the devil there and when god created the devil the devil was the most beautiful and the most wise creature god made god said you seal up the sun perfect in beauty and in wisdom and god gave the devil a very privileged position as the head of the class of angels known as the cherubim but the praise that he received from other beings who adoringly spoke of uh, of his privileges and and who spoke of his beauty 
who said to him, look at you, there's no one like you, and look at all the privilege that God's given you. That adoration to this one filled his heart with pride, and full of pride, he determined he was not going to be God's servant anymore, but he was going to instead attempt to lead a revolution and overthrow God himself. And he had a number of followers that joined him in the rebellion. We actually have a percentage on it. Again, if you remember, Revelation 12 tells us that one-third of all the angels that God made joined the devil in the rebellion against God, and they were put down and condemned with him. Those angels that went with the devil have subsequently been referred to in their fallen state as demons. And the New Testament paints quite a picture of what these demons are like. There's 14 occasions where they are referred to as evil spirits. There are 21 times where they are referred to as an unclean or unclean spirits. And that's obviously a a moral reference. These are unclean in the sense that they are immoral beings. Filthy beings. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 very directly refers to the angels that sin. And God's not sparing his judgment on them. These are sinful beings. These are evil beings. These are unclean spirits. And there are some specific ways in which some of them have sinned, and are, we're told about that. It even seems like there might be some that have sinned to different degrees. Um, all of them have been kicked out of heaven and are awaiting future judgment in hell. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Jesus spoke of everlasting fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the end of all of them. But some of them have already sinned to such a degree that they have since before the New Testament was written already been confined to hell with no potential of escape. Again, rebellious, evil, morally unclean. And further we learn that they are not limited to physical boundaries. And we see that right here in our text. Multiple demons can inhabit a single individual. In verse 28, both of these men that are spot, that the spotlight is on are possessed, inhabited by devils or demons, plural. And again, there's enough of them that when they go out, they inhabit a, an entire herd of swine. And wherever demons go... They do their best to degrade a person and cause them to live in awful conditions. Again, in verse 28, these demon-possessed men are living in tombs, or the graveyard is the idea. And as, as you can see, it says they were exceeding fierce so that no one would want to walk down the path that was close there. Their influence is compulsive. 
They influence towards destructive behavior in other places. They influence towards even nudity and cutting with stones or rolling in fire. They reduce some to being in a state of dumb or blind or even making a woman stay bent over for years. They have superhuman strength to the point that they are able to break shackles and chains. And again, in Frazier's ministry, there was evidence of this. There's a family named the Coes that professed faith in Jesus. And not long after Frazier left them in a a time of ministry, that family... Uh, the youngest of four sons in that family became very sick. Then as the sickness grew worse, they turned to what they called a diviner who told them that the sickness was a, a spirit seizure. And he told them to offer an animal. And Frazier couldn't later recall exactly whether that was a pig or a bird of some kind or some other animal when he related that when he heard about it but from the time they offered that the boy began to recover then there was a calm for a while but a few days later that boy and his next older brother went mad the older brother of the two picked up a winnowing basket and he started to beat it like a gong and he was raving the entire time and he's scaring everyone And the two of them climbed up on a table of of honor that was beneath the ancestral tablets. And the older boy actually shouted to his father, come over here and worship me or I'm going to die. The younger brother began to stuff his mouth full of rice, which was done um, to people that were ready to die. They said to give them food to eat in the next life. And the father was scared and he actually went and he bowed down before his sons. And the older brother picked up a bottle, uh, 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 picked up a bowl of pottery and and he actually shouted, I'm going to show you earth people whether I have power or not. And he flung that bowl to the ground while they watched it um, break all in pieces. And the chaos stopped. But in a short time, that younger boy His body sunk and he ended up dying. And dynamics like that, again, were not uncommon and unknown in Jesus' day. Earlier here in in chapter 8, back in verse number 16, we see when even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits. Many, many. This is not unknown. And with this backdrop, I want us to see what happened when the demons encounter Jesus face to face. And you'll notice in verse number 29, it was the demons that actually initiated the conversation. They spoke to Jesus and they say, what have we to do with you? And, and the idea in that phrase is, what, what business do we have with each other? There, there's really something even of, of a kind of protest that, uh, of Jesus that he has approached them. 
So obviously they see themselves, the demons see themselves in direct opposition to Jesus. What do we have to do in common? And, and then notice, as part of this kind of protest, they reveal who they believe Jesus to be. What have we to do with thee, Jesus? Thou what? Thou Son of God. And it is really remarkable that there's only been one other occasion in this book where there was testimony spoken as to the identity of Jesus. Uh, using this label. That was God the Father at Jesus' baptism. But now demons are proclaiming the same truth about Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And they give further indication that they're anticipating judgment for their rebellion. Notice at the end of verse number 29, Art thou come hither to torment us, to torture us, before the time. And again, I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Matthew 25 says that eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. They, they know his authority to send them to eternal fire. <clears throat> and they know that he is the one, of course, with ultimate authority over them. And they beg him, verse 31. They plead with him. They besought him. That if he is going to do something now to exercise his authority. The idea is when they ask, if you're going to cast us out, suffer us, allow us first to go into the herd of swine. They're really saying, all right, if you're going to act on us right now, please don't send us to hell now. We know you have the authority to do that. We know that's where we're headed, but we thought we had more time. Please don't send us to hell now. Send us into those pigs. In comparison to Jesus, these demons are what? They're powerless. They are superhuman. They can appear so frightening. But in the face of Jesus, they have to resort to begging for mercy. And in keeping with their plea, in verse number 32, he said unto them, go. And when he says go, and those demons are cast out into the pigs, we have the account that we've just read. The pigs run down the hill, and, and when the pigs run down the hill and end up in the sea, the account takes what has to be an, an incredible turn. I know we just read it, and you may have been familiar with it, but the people who are keeping the pigs, they go into town, they tell the whole city everything that had, that had happened, and, and what was now happening with those that were possessed of the devils, and Mark's account tells us that when they were, Jesus left them with the devils gone, <coughs> uh, they are clothed and sitting in their right mind. 
They go in to report, and you would think that the people would do what? Okay, these guys have been so fierce. They're out there in the graveyard. They've actually taken over a road so that people don't even want to use that road anymore and go anywhere in the vicinity of them. You would think that the people in the town, when they hear the report, they would rejoice. But instead of responding with rejoicing, they actually come out in verse number 34. The whole city comes out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him. They plead with him that he would do what? That he would depart, leave. Would you please get out of here? What? How can that happen? And there's no description here that is explicit. And so we don't know exactly the motivation. But many have commented, and I think with good reason, on the fact that they have just lost the value of a couple thousand pigs. And the gain that that would have been, the supply of food that would have been, and maybe that's what this city was actually even known for. Maybe this small town is actually known for. This is the place where people come because they have thousands of pigs. This is the place where people come to buy your pig. I mean, if you want to go to the pig market, here it is. It may well have been that, that it was the loss of the financial gain for multiple individuals and even people coming for other purposes into that town. Whatever it is, they are more, they're more concerned with parting with their livestock than they are with Jesus. And again, while that may seem just mind-boggling, the fact is that even to this day, many people are, are truly uncomfortable with coming face to face with Jesus and his claims and his power and even his words. Sometimes people today are alarmed at just attending a church like this where the scripture is given attention to with some gravity and sobriety and where it is regarded as the final authority. I've had the opportunity to read a page of a journal of a young lady that at 17 or so walked into a gospel preaching church for the first time she actually came to a christian school graduation it was her first time to be in there and and when she wrote in her journal afterwards she wrote that there was a fear she's like i walked into a world i didn't know that existed and the whole thing scared me but i've had people in one ministry, was actually a deacon and been there not very long. And a deacon called me aside and just said, Pastor Fuller, I want you to know 
that, that we are having the word ministered to us over these last few months with a gravity that I have never been exposed to before. And he said, it's doing something deep in our inner man. And then he actually, thankfully, said, have patience with us. Just, just appealing that. I mean, but there are people, honestly, there are people. And I have a pastor friend that tells the story of praying about some extended relatives that were coming to a church like ours where they heard preaching like this. And they had been praying for these extended relatives that were coming, that were unchurched, and they came to the service. And as they walked out, several people heard them have a little exchange. And some one said to another, what did you think? And somebody said, I didn't like that at all. That was scary. And brethren, you've been here you're in our services, you see the order, there's nothing wild and crazy going on, but sometimes people actually just hear somebody preaching that Bible as if those words of that man who lived 2,000 years ago are the ultimate authority over everything in life, and it strikes them with fear. You know that even people that will attend attend our kind of church and will do it for weeks, sometimes when false teaching is exposed and rebuked, they actually get a little edgy. And they get uncomfortable. Sometimes, and this has happened even since I've been here, when obviously sinful practices are confronted people get alarmed i'm saying i've had people here say when i heard that preaching from that text i saw it was right but it scared me sometimes when preaching warns about a false sense of security that is rooted in mere lip service profession of faith. Some people actually get upset and they react as if there's something wrong with that kind of preaching. Like a preaching that says that when somebody has prayed a prayer when they were eight or nine and they haven't darkened the doors of church for a decade or two or three that there's room to question whether those people even really know the Lord. There are people who say that that kind of preaching is dangerous. But brethren, the epistle James in chapter 2 explicitly confronts a profession of faith that has no evidence in a changed life. You say you have faith and have not works. Faith without works is dead, being alone, And in that very context, James actually says to people, right? He says to people, you believe that there is one God, thou doest well. And then he adds what? The devils also believe and tremble. There is a faith 
that is the faith of demons. They profess, Jesus, thou son of God, are you come to torment us before the time? They got his identity right. They got his authority right. They knew the outcome of that authority. They got it all right, and they will spend eternity in hell. James uses this very kind of setting to warn, you better have something more than that of the demons. And yet people can get alarmed. And honestly, all of us that hear it, we're struck with, there's there's some gravity. And some people are alarmed and threatened when when family do genuinely believe and follow the one with all authority and actually decide to live their life by the book that are his words. One girl is saved out of a community college and out of a partying life. And she eventually communicated to some of the church family that her parents were happier with her when she came home, this was her own testimony, when she came home with her sweatshirt soaked in beer than they were when she told them, I'm following Jesus. His word is my final authority. There are many that get close enough to see and to consider something of the claims of Jesus. They're, they're, they're close enough to be aware of his power and of his authority. And they actually just want him to go. Because there's fear about how it might completely alter the whole structure and framework of my life. When we go back to a consideration of, of devilish activity, and we'll be much more thorough even this evening because we're going to take it the next step in the devil's campaign. But when Ephesians chapter 6 exhorts us to get armored up against spiritual wickedness, some of the key battlefronts that are noted in Ephesians, leading up to that exhortation, are that the devil attacks the unity of the church. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit glorifies God. And the devil attacks the purity and the integrity of the lifestyles of the church. Because again, later in chapter 4, that kind of conduct, the kind of conduct that glorifies God is in contrast to the sensual, immoral, dishonest lifestyles in our culture. In chapter 5, the devil attacks, amongst other things, regarding the Holy Spirit's influence, he attacks the relationships in our homes. Because conduct that glorifies God involves wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving wives as Christ and children obeying and, and honoring parents and parents taking responsibility to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. When people yield to the influence of the Spirit to do that, that glorifies God. That is an arena where the devil attacks. And in our culture where the light of the gospel has had such an impact, Again, the devil may have to resort to less open tactics 
as he did during these days of the time of Christ and other places in the earth today. And he will adjust. 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul warned all the way back then that Satan will disguise himself as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. If he can promote compromise that moves away from a pure gospel and true discipleship in the name of a righteous cause, he will take that. And he will enslave through other things like jealousy and selfish ambition. In James chapter 3, James says these things are earthly, sensual, and devilish. We're warned about harboring anger and giving place to the devil. And again, last Sunday evening, we saw all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the devil's primary method was to get people to disobey God's word by presenting them with questions and arguments that caused them to think about whether, you know, you can actually improve your life by getting free of living it all in keeping with those words. Those words, you keep taking them so literally. You keep living your whole life by those words and they restrict you and they bind you and you, you, you can reach your full potential by getting outside of them. Brethren, the, the devil is still attacking. And you and I ought to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And sometimes you encounter people that have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be exposed to who Jesus really is. Like these people in that day, they saw with their own eyes that with a word, thousands of demons are dismissed. And people, in the light of the full gospel, now, and and the entirety of our New Testament, after the cross, after the resurrection, and through preaching, and watching a a, a church of, of faithful people, they've had opportunity to see who Jesus is. And they get right to a place where they run into a crossroads and end up saying, I don't want him. It will mess my life up too much. And in some places, there have been entire communities like that. And sadly, there has been even churches like that where they just don't want to submit to the authority of Jesus and his words. And brethren, every time we have opportunity to hear faithful proclamation of the mind of Jesus revealed in any part of his word. We have to recognize there is such a gravity to that. As one old Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs said, you you are never in that where you don't come out either closer to heaven or closer to hell. And every time we have opportunity to hear those words and we wrestle with whether we will really submit to those words or not, 
and we decide to just even put it off, we're in a dangerous position. And maybe there's someone here this morning, and there is even pressure at this very moment. And, and you, you know yourself to be at some kind of a crossroads. And maybe you wouldn't have even, you know, kind of written it down that specifically, but you know what's been brewing in your life. You know what you've been considering. You've been watching. You've been listening. You've been seeing. You've been considering all of what it would mean to just really submit yourself to that one with that authority and live by all of his word. If you push that off and push him away, you need to know that you are at a really dangerous place. <clears throat> but here's the thrilling truth to proclaim. That the devil and all his demons are no match for the authoritative words of Jesus. And again, I, I just marvel. I mean, I had already been in the passage and working with it. And I just was back at it again yesterday and looking again at chapter 8 and verse 32. And all Jesus had to say was, go. It's done. I mean, one word. Go. Be gone. It's over. The faithful proclamation of the gospel. The faithful proclamation of the whole counsel of the word of God in text after text after text is able to dispel darkness out of individual lives. It's able to rescue and recover and deliver lives from sinful bondage. And you know what? It's able to build a church even in the face of the onslaught of the gates of hell. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he will do it through those words. Jesus has all authority over the spirit world and the whole realm of darkness. And by the preaching of the gospel, men and women and boys and girls to this day are still translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. He has all authority. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I know there is there are elements of this whole scene and what we've looked at this morning that are seem re so far removed from the circumstantial details of our lives, but what we're supposed to come out of this with is awareness that there's a real devil and a, a host of his workers. And while we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, there is a real battle. And again, I'm supposed to come out sober and vigilant. That there is one who's walking around, as it were, waiting for a foothold, an entrance, an unguarded door. And then I'm supposed to recognize that 
Jesus is the one with all authority. He's the source of victory. And I'm supposed to believe and then respond to his words. So brethren, wherever it might be in our life, where we've been considering a claim of his word to authority over some part of our life, respond today. Respond today with a sweet submission, lest you open yourself up to something that is real and powerful and awful in its outcome.